Welcome to the New Models Podcast. We have another Green Room episode for you, which is somewhat natural as bodies again are moving physically through space, even across oceans. Stopping by the New Models studio in Berlin for this conversation is Aaron David Ross, or ADR, an artist and composer based in New York who you may know through his project Gatekeeper. His music for Grant Singer's IRL, a short film and invaluable time capsule of NYC's early 10s cultural zeitgeist. His collaboration with Winotrix Point Never for the Safdie Brothers film Uncut Gems. His scores for artists Cora Crit and Renandan Chai, and various other involvements with La Fonda, Kalela, Ryan Chakartan, Telfar, etc., etc. This year, ADR released his fourth solo album, Filter Failure pairing each song with a CGI video also of his own making. Naturally, he does all of this while working at the world-class Yamaha Artist Services Studio in Manhattan. I first met Aaron in 2009. Yes, the year 2009. And apparently, we shared a twin bed. Imagine what else you'll learn in this episode. I'm Lil Internet, joined by New Models co-hosts Carly Busta and Daniel Keller, and our guest, live in the flesh, but always with a hint of virtuality, is Aaron David Ross, AKA ADR. Let's get into it. Green Room, a new models podcast. Aaron David Ross is joining us here. And, and Carly was just saying how Aaron did the music for IRL, Grand which, Singers short from 2012 or 2011 13 13 this period this like internet apocalypse moment but it was such a good time capsule of that time in new york which i think is extremely influential i mean it's almost like that aesthetic never left yeah i mean it certainly is still there 2013 I mean, so filmed 2013, in 2012 which right. makes sense cuz 2012 that was the uh, aesthetic apocalypse but what year did uncut gems take place in 2012, right? No, 20. Oh, 2011 right. or 2012. Right. Yeah. yeah, maybe you're right. I thought, I thought, yeah. Thought. Right. And you no, also notable. contributed to the music of Uncut Gems. Mm-hmm. So there's yeah. that. So it would be interesting to talk both about music, but also maybe about like the way certain mass codes have evolved, especially as this generation has grown up and matured. What maybe has come up in its place or around it, and what. Remains. And the recent record came out, fil- Filter Failure. Which yeah, is I mean, excellent. the primary reason we're doing this is because you just put out a record, Filter Failure, which is as much a series of songs as it is a set of videos, if I understand correctly, animations. Yeah. And so maybe we can also talk a little bit about what the object form of a release is in 2021, or at least for you in 2021. Yeah, the object form of the release is an interesting place to start. I think Filter Failure. Did I sort of just sacrifice to like the greater platform logic a little bit? I had always tried to push different projects I was working on in different distribution strategies and things like that. And I kind of wanted to use like a conventional system for this release. And even though I didn't do like a vinyl or CD release, which mm. is like very much the conventional system, I feel like it's kind of been replaced by the streaming platforms as this kind of like standard way that everyone can already have the thing on their phone, you know, yeah. which for all of the problems of the streaming economy and everything like that, there is a real magic. Like I had to release my label, Legendarium, the second one we've ever put out, came out today and I almost forgot about it. And I was like, oh, checked Spotify and now it's like already on my phone, you know, like I don't love these platforms, but I do love the kind of immediacy of like being able to push it all out, you know, it's yeah. like, 
you uh, two had that famous thing where they were able to get their album on oh. everyone's iTunes. You know what I mean? That Still was like have it, pretty I funny. Yeah. But I think like it keeps coming back. The yeah. logic of Spotify is kind of the same thing in a way. You know what I mean? Like you have to search for it a little more. It's not taking up actual megabytes on your device, but right. it still is already there. It's like there without you needing to do anything. And so I put filter failure out in that way. It was kind of just meant to be about these these videos and these song objects that could just kind of exist in this conventional distribution space. And as soon as it came out, I was like, I should have done something. Else. You know what I mean? I was like, I should have done like a at least this like USB token that we did for Coracrit or something. It's like there is a real pleasure to Having something, mostly I think it's just to give to my friends or something like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not about selling it, it's just about having some token of the time and place right. that that record existed and to be able to give it out to people and share it that way. I think I'm going to be a pretty bad label owner for that reason. You know what I mean? Like so far, <laughs> I've just been giving everything release. away. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, like music has never seemed like it cost anything to me. I've never really been paid for music as a material in that way or like a really, you know, it's always like, for a brand or a project or an artist, but like the music as the material doesn't have like a financial value to me. Mm-hmm. I think it has this like ephemeral value that can't be really financialized. And so any attempt to try to sell it doesn't seem, I don't know, it doesn't seem contemporary, you yeah. know? But I do really like having physical objects that I can give away. And I think I'll have to like sell them online, especially with this crit release. I think people want that. Maybe we could talk a second about yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, so two things of clarification. One, maybe, can you just say a few words about the concept of filter failure? And then also, yeah, it would be nice to know like the club you just did with Court Crit and uh, give a little more context for our listeners who aren't familiar. Or maybe this is the first time they've been coming to your work. Yeah, well, Filter Failure came out of a record I did in 2016 called Throat, which was all made out of human voice sounds. And that's a kind of a mm-hmm. pretty common trope now, I think, of like a lot of instruments being made out of the you know human voice as a starting point, especially with like you know acapella groups and stuff right. like that, beatboxing and like right. that whole that whole thing. And also Nasheeds, um, right? Isn't that like with like the Taliban can only use the human voice, but their big oh, yeah. hack is like Ableton. <laughs> well yeah, they just do like it's all acapella, but they'll just do all this processing to make percussive sounds or like pads or like whatever. But technically there's no, no string instruments. Stringed instruments. Right. There's no drum because you know that you can only play the drum during a wedding or a uh, very special Unless celebration. Unless you can make a drum with your throat or something. Yeah, right? but they'll like, just have guys yeah. go like boom, and then right. they'll do the cut off, like filter the EQ, so it just sounds like a kick. And yeah, yeah. So. right layer. I mean, you can create pretty much any timbre with your mouth. Yeah. Um, and a, a lot of throat was made like that way, just like singing, kind of screeching into a mic. But a lot of it was also just sampling voices and pulling voices from different places and processing them. And mm-hmm. I got to perform that in New York and I decided to like kind of sing it, beatbox it, even though there's not like lyrics or met, like I was kind of singing and playing along with that record in a live context. And it was the first time I'd ever like sung for an audience in a contemporary setting. And it felt like the exchange of energy was really different. It was like really different than like standing in the dark in the fog, you know, like you have this connection with an audience when you're singing, when you're like visible and like that kind of exchange is something that was really compelling to me. So I decided I wanted to like write a bunch of songs and Uh figure out how to sing them. And the animation side of it, which really guided the 
how the whole project got finished came in later. I got like a gamer PC, and so I was like experimenting mm-hmm. with like free animation programs and just like not knowing at all what I was doing, like dorking around. The program was called iClone. Mm-hmm. It's actually not free, I got a crack of it, but it was kind of like a preset based program where you can like drag in your character and like drag in your head and like drag <laughs> in your trees and like generate your, but you can also like drag in any OBJ. So the potential is really endless there. And I got so obsessed with this program. And it took so long. I started performing this project in 2019 at like a Venice Biennale show, I think was the first time I did it. And then the second one was at Issue Project Room. Uh Um, And that was March 13th, the night before lockdown in New York. And it was like a weird pandemic show where no one had masks because you remember like we weren't allowed to have masks. Like, oh. <laughs> and they were, there was also a shortage. Yeah, you well, there was like a shortage. Right, you know? right, yeah. right, right. I guess you get to air quotes on a podcast right. very well. But, um, <laughs> so no one had masks, and everyone was like ferociously washing their hands and had no idea like how to interact with anyone, and like everyone was like terrified. But it was kind of a fun, surreal, like plague show, you know, because everyone knew we weren't going to be able to do it for a while. But the project went kind of back into incubation after mm-hmm. that, and. In order for me to feel good about putting it out now and playing it, it needed to have that kind of update because pretending like nothing happened and doing the same show again is really unnatural to yeah. me. It feels like we're doing that a little bit. Well, you there's know, a lot of like TV shows. I feel like like in Succession, for instance, is did the plague happen or not? I'm oh, not quite right. Sure. Oh, I can't wait. Because in, right, the, in the previews, right. there's no masks. Right, so right. I do wonder. Interesting. Yeah. I do think that's a big question of like whether or not to like follow through with continuity or it, not. It's kind of like how a lot of shows just like pretend there's no smartphones. In a certain yeah. way, like that's right. more like about because like it's hard to use that as a narrative device. Totally, but still, no, I guess masks are too. It's yeah, an exactly. annoying, <laughs> annoying convention to have there. No, I do understand. Yeah, has why. there been any it's TV where you see everyone masked? No, I was watching right? um, just reality TV. SVU, the new season of SVU, they have like a wow. like a plague season and. It's pretty crazy. They're trying to do like Black Lives Matter, New York cop storylines, which mm. are like extremely. Clunky for them to try to handle. Yeah. It's like also I mean, a little late, obviously. Oh, of course, yeah. TV but works, but right? also, yeah. the amazing thing about something like BLM is that, like, its primary mediation is its best TV show ever. Like, mm. the moment you try to then recreate that, it's going to feel really like canned. the Kendall Jenner Pepsi ad or something. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Like, you actually can't. I mean, the whole value of it was that it was like a pedestrian mediated mass TV show, right? right. MMORPG that happened in real time. You don't really want to watch the recreation of. It. No, not to mention like working in like uh, schizophrenics who uh, molested a child, but actually they didn't. At the end, you find out because actually Ice T, yeah. Ice T knew all along right. that he didn't do it. Um, is Ice T still on SVU? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. Cool. TV update completed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I want to get the ADR timeline down though. Let's do it. When yeah. I first met you, or became aware of your work. You are still in Chicago, I believe, doing Gatekeeper, which is kind of like haunted Italo disco style stuff, but still really symphonic, really big in scope. Then you came to NYC, I think, and it was more by IRL time. Was it solo or was Uh, it? That was with Matthew too. Um, Okay. And Matthew was also with Uncut Gems. Matthew is also with most of the New York era. Gotcha. Has been like collaborations with him. We still work on stuff a lot. We'll eventually release another Gatekeeper album too that's like drive uh. dump of the last like, you know, eight years or whatever of stuff. <laughs> right. um, but we work frequently on on music. We have a perfectionist problem though. It's hard to hard <laughs> to finish stuff for us. Um, yeah. Maybe you could trace a timeline of like 
where you were looking music wise though. Yeah. Because there was a hard style moment, if I'm not uh, mistaken. I think some of the gatekeeper stuff played with those tropes a little bit towards the end of like the Young Kronos release in 2014. Right. Had some of those like never really like straight hard style, but like definitely some of those I don't know premium distortion references and like hard drums and things like that. We were also like looking more to like movie trailer like Brahms and totally. Tycho mm. drum symphony that kind of thing like. At that time, which there's a lot of crossover in hard style and EDM too. The timeline, it's hard because I feel like I've always been kind of like spread through all these different types of communities and like genre isn't really like a signal post for me. Like it, maybe it helps people form communities around music, but it hasn't really ever like. It's, I guess that's not true. In some cases, I'll be like, oh, wow, I just discovered this genre of music that I really love and I want to like explore it and learn it and make something that's related to it or something. But for the most part, I think most of my collaborations have been with artists and other musicians who are just like looking for a certain feeling and we can kind of like go into the studio and try to find it together, you know? You're right. right. Feeling now trumps genre. Like, totally. Because, every, you know, what when you have Spotify, like, what is a genre anyway? You're constantly, I mean, even Spotify can't really understand the difference between, like, techno and house or... Not at all. Disco. Yeah, yeah, So, like, those genres were related to, like, 90s subcultural politics. And in the time of Spotify, it's about certain feelings or yeah. certain affect. Well, it's related to, to music discovery, too. Like, yeah. you... Now, music discovery is like mostly algorithmic, right. which I don't think is is a good evolution of of that. But scene logic kind of needs genres to like yeah. adhere. You know what I mean? Like you have to like see someone wearing the shirt that you know to like cross that bridge with them or something. You know? But like the way we discover music now, being mostly isolated and by ourselves and like on our phones, it feels like the genre signifiers don't have any meaning. Like even from one person to the next, a genre signifier could have like a totally different meaning. They don't related to algorithmic discovery though, you're overlooking hearing like a car driving by playing a drill song um, and having to Shazam it. I feel totally. like that's similar. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. I feel like yeah. in, in Brooklyn when I was there recently, I was very much experiencing the Shazam drive by moment. So <laughs> I think that's still important. Like there's still emitters in public. It's not quite algorithmic. That's definitely it's still true. chance based. Yeah, yeah. And maybe collision, but it's very really, really good idea. Discovery. Really good idea too to have a a car blasting drill driving by you and you reach into your pocket staring at them to retrieve a <laughs> black object to point at them. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and hopefully, maybe you hear a DJ play a song you like or something like that, and like, can you do music discovery that way in like a more traditional scene-oriented way? But I don't think that that's how young people are discovering music. I don't really know. Obviously, I'm not a young person, but yeah. that's in TikTok like, probably actually, which is like also different than algorithmic discovery. How do people decide which songs to put in? On the that is I swear to God, I, well, actually, because last night I was like, it's a form of either self harm or spacing out. But I was just like looking at run of the mill general TikTok, just seeing like what comes up in the algorithm, and you see there's all this music, a lot of it from like. 15, 20 years ago, I think they're hmm. looking at the lyrics, lyrics that they can act out. I mean, this is, I know there are so many 
cooler subcultures on TikTok. So I'm really speaking about like top algorithmic run of the mill. For you page. Right. It, the for you page for someone who like is not interacting. But that, you know, is a kind of sample set in itself. Sure. And um, it's like MIA's paper planes just like acting out every little part with like a cute hand sign dressed like in a princess outfit. Right. Non-ironically. <laughs> just like really precise. Like I look like I'm the computer animation acting out the lyrics. And I feel like for the, you know, general middle of the bell curve, there's a lot of that. Like, what are the lyrics? Are they one-to-one relatable to something that I can act out? Then I will choose this song. It's also a lot about tension and release moments, like build-ups sure, and drops. And yeah. drops. Definitely. Like, I saw some, I don't Surprise know, right-wing right yeah. TikTok video where, right, this is one of those internet genres. It's called Fonk with P-H-O-N-K. Uh, uh-huh. And it's kind of yeah. like Gen Z kids making tracks that sound like old 3-6 Mafia instrumental mixtapes from the early 90s. But yeah, it was just some song where it had like a little 808 or something cowbell line where you do like a melody with the cowbells on the drum machine. It's just the cowbells. It speeds up, gets faster and faster. Then it cuts out and there's a gunshot and then the beat drops with the line at the like Right tempo. That's perfect for TikTok. But it's right, exactly. It's, it's always like these, like if it's a te- if it's an interesting tension and release sort of build up and drop that allows you to tell a micro narrative, like, right? Because that fits along with the setup and payoff. Absolutely, um, yeah. It it works, and I'm curious how TikTok is gonna how its own refinement logic might end up inspiring songwriters and pop music and in general. I mean, yeah. that, that format is pretty tried and true, though. Even like going back to like early music and medieval music, like you have that like cadential release, this like right. built into the harmony, this like sense of suspense and arrival and things like that, you know. But yeah, like once you get. Drop. But it's, uh, yeah, but the, I mean, the details really matter, right? Like not often will you have a buildup where there's actually a tempo change. Also, the fake drop, you know, where it's like on the one where the it should drop, there's another bar of a pause where a yeah. little mm-hmm. trick happens and then it drops, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's like, I feel like there's. Like drop science is gonna be like really yeah. <laughs> important for well, it's like EDM and especially just, within the time span of a TikTok right, video. Do you right. think they're still evolving the drop form though? I feel like it's a bit stuck. Every trick's been done, but you but you never had a focus group this big to test it again. Uh, so yeah, I think you'll true. be able to refine the best uh the <laughs> ultimate drop tech technology. But and also guess, drops are being phased out by Spotify as the option. So there's like optimizing for Spotify, you have as little of a drop as possible. Mm. TikTok, you oh, want to have right. maximally drop because it's all, why because you want to have a mood, continuous, continuous playlist and uh-huh. just mood, and you don't want to have anything that's too you know right. that stands out too much right. at all. Also, who was it? I was listening to some songwriter who was like, "Well, actually, you kind of want this sense of the song not totally resolving because it actually increases replayability. Oh yeah, definitely. Right. Huh. Where you're like, right. un, you're like not satisfied after you've consumed the song. And I you feel like that's right. why pop songs are all under the like perfect pop song time at this point, right? Though it is for that. It's all reason. about edging. It's well, <gasps> yeah, or just right, replaying or you're not like satisfied. the opposite of edging. Compulsive fapping <laughs> over and over and over and over again. An un- compulsively one unsatisfying <laughs> yeah, fapping. One, one of the other. One always, of the other. always searching for that first hit. Do you use any tricks in your music like that? Even if it's like in an sort of intellectual, interesting way. Um, yeah, I mean, I think drop, applied drop science. Yeah, drop, drop science. science. <laughs> drop science is definitely fascinating, and it applies to most kinds of music, you know what I mean? Yeah. Even if it doesn't follow like a festy EDM structure, you know, like needing that kind of tension and release payoff. I think like 
Transition design is something that I really spend a lot of time thinking about, and it's probably one of the hardest things to do. It's like takes the longest to get like the one to sound right after the last four, you yeah. know, type uh, transition. So it's like sometimes it's as easy as like a reverse symbol, you know what I mean? But a lot of times, like what you're saying, pulling things out and like leaving space for certain things and getting the exact millisecond right for like the cutoff so that it's not exactly on the one, but it's like just over so that it takes a little bit longer, but it's like perceptually like. There's a lot of like transition design techniques that like you kind of have to try every one to mm, like see which right. one's going to work mm. best in a specific moment, you know. I mean, sound design in general I think is a lot of transition design. Printing out reverb tails and reversing them and things like that is like a pretty common technique and that's something I use a lot to introduce a sound so it doesn't come out of nowhere. It kind of like feels like it's like arriving as opposed to appearing, you know, mm. like but drop science tricks. <laughs> I mean, there's certain rhythm rhythmic Patterns also that I feel like throw people off in a really fun way on a drop, and but they all got kind of played. You know uh-huh. what I mean? I feel like Jack U songs from like 2015 or whatever was like pushing it as far as I've ever heard it go, and like now I, I'm not sure what. I also feel like that was there. one start. Like Spotify core started taking over, and mm-hmm. you, yeah, reached peak drop in general. I do wonder if there's like similar affordances to designing a supreme drop mm-hmm. as opposed to a beat drop. Like, are there similar psychological affordances? <laughs> Drop yeah. design. <laughs> I feel like that in general, drops like we think about drops all the time. That's and throughout, true. Like it's more important than ever. I mean, and the drop, of course, is the core unit. In this case, the sound or the shoe. But then it's all of the, the media you're creating around it to propel it, right? And the anticipation and is kind anticipation. of where it all gets built. Yeah. Yeah. It's where the fantasy, the world building happens in the lead up, in the pre-sale, in the whatever, right? So that's actually the design. I feel like we, I reference Balenciaga in every single podcast. So there should be a moratorium, but like it's almost less about the clothes than it is about the world building around each scene at this point, right? Mm. For which has been one of their vehicles, but. For you, to what degree does the build-up play into your thinking? I think with Gatekeeper, we experimented with that a lot. And there's like traditional musical builds and drops, and then also maybe more theoretical marketing builds and drops. And like we released a, a record as a torrent that was like only available through Pirate Bay, basically. Uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. where you have a kind of like environment to to consume something through kind of creates like a bit of anticipation towards it, you know what I mean? Like or some nostalgia of like yourself downloading torrents in the past and like kind of the mindset that that puts you in. When I'm thinking about drops though in the fashion world, like the Telfar thing comes to mind where like oh, yeah. now they're doing drip instead of drop <laughs> so that like things are like coming out you know in a more or spread out like less at a time and not like all this emphasis on these individual moments that's probably the way a lot of fashion brands might change just yeah. because at least cool ones because there's no need for like all that anticipation and all that money and all that resources on one event you know I mean the distribution of those is it's like right. gets gamed yeah, yeah. I mean not to bring it, we're going to bring it to NFTs eventually, but I'm going to bring it now. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the like interesting innovation in NFTs right now are about the drop and about uh-huh. trying to have more fair drops and less gameable drops and less, mm-hmm. you know, have not having bots control it or people yeah. with bots rather. So, yeah, I do think like the drip makes, yeah, there's a lot there. We're going to keep dripping also, our codex for like yeah. <laughs> 10 years. Also, Ali, AliExpress will probably like have knockoffs by the time it drops, anyways, totally. as long as there's like a photo of what's coming out. Yeah, that's changed the industry a lot. You know? Like Sheehan is like totally crazy. I mean, I think we need to talk about it on a whole what is podcast. Sheehan? I know you but keep bringing it up in different. It's pods, just it's like the Chinese mecca 
beast of fast fashion where it just rapidly rips off everything cool and puts it out for like $10 extremely quickly. And it's all over TikTok. And it's really scary because... It's different than Shanzai. It's like hyper Shanzai. It's just... Well, the thing or is... Or it's actually a brand or it's a city. No, it's like... You, it's like Xi'an, a, not the city. It's called Xi'in, like S-H-E-I-N, but mm-hmm. one okay. word. Yeah. And I mean, they just move so fast. I mean, I also saw this on AliExpress, but it's like you'll see an item, a pair of sunglasses, a pair of shoes, and they'll just have a picture of some celebrity or some fashion influencer wearing it. <laughs> and it's just like people look for cool designers, what fashion bloggers are posting, and then they just make a copy of it really quick, and then they sell it. And Shein is doing this on like a mass scale. It's not like distributed little factories doing it. And they'll take entire collections. So mostly for the Asian market? Or do no, you think American uh-huh. market. Uh-huh. And Gen Z kids are like posting their Shein hauls, and everything is super cheap, and you can just buy a ton of stuff. And it's, it's really scary. Maybe like the future of the drop is that there is no buildup, or there <laughs> is no, you have to, you have right. to kind of beat the punch. Anticipate it, yeah. yeah. Right. Or they don't, maybe they'll have NFTs attached to the clothing to or maybe you just have to there. make things that are like unclonable which no, is that's also another a interesting whole other category. Uh, yeah. like in music i think certain types of music are like highly clonable and others are like really not and the stuff that's not is definitely what's going to stimulate me the most yeah. as as a listener you know like things but, where i can know everything i know about technically how music is made and have no idea how something yeah. was made that's like what's exciting you know and musicality also can go really far cuz that's actually something that you have to that's unclonable spend yeah you have yeah. to spend some time it's not like really like fire tools cuz she's just like virtuosic at like mm. instruments yeah. and like r- like weird key changes and totally. jazz chords and shit that's like you can't just watch a youtube tutorial and, and learn so you have to like ma- yeah study for years and master like yeah. you can watch a youtube tutorial but it just takes a really long time yeah. <laughs> you have to practice <laughs> For years. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of tutorials, yeah. yeah. No, she's awesome. I mean, yeah, harmony is kind of a language I think that's like not uh, not utilized nearly enough in the music that you know surrounds us. There's so few forms that like really prioritize harmony as like a narrative language or something. And the composer brain, like I've always like studying classical music and early music and that kind of stuff, I love the way that harmony is kind of the only storyteller, you know, it's like the the whole thing is existing in these like psychoacoustic slight detuned relationships and the are octave and things like mm-hmm. that, you know, where you're like creating these stories that are like beyond even linguistic ability to describe like the emotions that are too specific for words even that like come out of these combinations of frequencies. I mean, that's what really gets me excited. Music is VR for emotion. <laughs> <laughs> we were listening to like Georgian polyphonic singing last night. Remember, oh, that I was stuff like, is so sick. It's so sick. Oh I was God. like laying on the floor. I was like, you know how you feel after you just like eat like a really like something amazing and you have like no needs. You just feel like everything's been satiated. Like that's what your head feels like <laughs> when you listen to like polyphonic Georgian singing. It's yeah. insane. Actually, there is a Georgian composer who I worked with on some of the filter failure stuff. He's like a Yamaha artist, a guy I know through Yamaha named Yorgi Mikadze, and crazy keyboardist. And one day we like sat around with him on a disclavier, which is like a MIDI grand piano. And I just was like giving him cues, and he was just like improvising, and I was recording MIDI from it. And a lot of the songwriting from filter failure started there, like some of the cooler harmonic stuff, because my brain isn't. A jazz brain, you know what I mean? Like, what I is can, your brain? 
<laughs> it's classical brain. It's more classical, yeah, yeah, than jazz. And so I have like an understanding of music theory and a good ear, but it's hard to like communicate through the language of harmony. It's just like an extremely specific skill that like you really have to study jazz for years and like ingrain it into your, you know, muscle memory to like be able to do it in different keys and things like that. I mean, I can kind of fake it in a few keys, but you know, to really not play the same thing over and over again right. and like, you know, kind of pull in different influences like that. The last track on Filter Failure, uh, Wake of Wrath, which is the really crazy gesture one with all the fire. I don't know if you guys have seen the video, but it's like based on traditional Georgian harmony. And oh. as I was like learning it, it was like tripping me out because yeah. it's like chromatic changes that I wouldn't normally think were what it should be, but it is, you know what I mean? It's like, wait, that's what that is? Like, as I'm like learning it to perform it. And it's always fun for me to like bring in some completely outside reference that like doesn't have any context within what I'm doing and kind of as a starting point or something. So when I'm composing, a lot of times I'll use like plugins that are chord progression generators that just have like, like tons the of chords. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and you can just like dork around on the keyboard and like find what's compelling you musically, what's telling the right story as opposed to like having to shred for years and yeah. get it into my fingers. It's just like not. Yeah, that's how yeah. I Cthulhu is how I get away with not knowing any theory or having ever learned an instrument. So I mean it's yeah. The arpeggiator in Cthulhu is also so advanced. There's no arpeggiator like that. I don't know if you've used it. I I don't think I have used it yet, but it's I It's basically like a sequencer, but it'll update depending on what chord it's uh, on, you know. So it like does all these really interesting patterns that you can't do with a normal arpeggiator. Good for trance. Yeah, good for anything, honestly. Like our arpeggiations are kind of like picked guitar music, isn't right. it? Right. I mean, it's all right. yeah, it's all right. kind of that. I also wondered if, because uh, filter failure, obviously, I mean, it has a a really rich sound. Like technologically, what were like the biggest game changers for you? Like I imagine, I mean, are a lot of the sounds like what are they like Omnisphere? Like a lot of them are like perfect, but they're not redundant. Like the vibrato changes are how the note closes, especially all your pan flute and shakuhachi oh, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like. Yeah, I mean, um, most of that is honestly contact. Ah, okay. And like, yeah, the kind of orchestral contact library world, which is so insane. Like, can you, you can, like, for the for those of us who aren't in music production, yeah. what is the contact library? What is that? Contact is a sampler that yeah. can run in any like digital audio workstation. Okay. Um, and then it loads libraries that are made by independent developers. So there's like uh-huh. tons of developers that make libraries for them. And some of them are like really expensive and like, you know, it'll be like five hundred dollar library and it's like you know, shakuhachi. Eight hundred gigabytes of every articulation of like, yeah. Oh, shakuhachi. Every, what is the shakuhachi? Also, a Japanese flute. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, that's that, the yeah. the wake of wrath flutes in that one are. I think it's like the nay flute actually. Oh, okay. Like, yeah, some sample library for that. But the realism that you can get from those things if you go in and kind of automate all of like the expressiveness and modulation, get the velocities all dialed in and all of that. Like, there's you can get. Get it to sound extremely realistic, mm-hmm. and it's a lot more labor intensive than like somebody who's just good at it, like playing the thing <laughs> and you recording that. But I am not, you know what I mean. I don't have all those instruments, or so you can kind of translate any keyboard performance into that, and then go in and edit it and get it to sound like realistic. And I worked, I like apprenticed this trailer composer in California a few years ago. We released like a few albums of like literal trailer music that they're trying to like uh. sync to like the trailer industry stuff so I kind of learned a lot of the orchestral and like realistic instrument techniques from him 
it's a pretty crazy world. Like it goes really, really deep. People have like studios with like servers and like four computers running all their sample <laughs> libraries. And like the hardest part is to get that all to work in real time. You know, it kind of doesn't. You introduce so much latency and so much digital bloat when you're mm-hmm. running these Just programs. Like, yeah. like you can't really just like play it and it's immediate, you know, like you can with an instrument. So why does anyone even need trailer music when there's that requiem from the dream song? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question why anyone needs more trailer music. I've seen that song used so many like in Marvel films and stuff. Like now the trope of just like whatever song your parents listen to, a cappella and like doing the trailer treatment of that song. It's like pretty painful. I feel like it's ruined a few. Like in the new Matrix the the new Matrix, the new Dune also it ruined both of those trailers in a way. Mm -hmm. Even though I am excited for Dune. Sure. In 3D. And I mean, for, <laughs> yeah. the, for the Matrix. And for Matrix too, sure. Yeah. 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 I'm more excited for Dune. Yes, I'm, I think. I'm like a big Dune fan, and that sure. one actually looks like it might be good. But um, there was no spice in the trailer. Yeah, what, Where there's nothing. Spice? Where's the spice? The spice, I guess they don't talk about it in the trailer. It's yeah. the teaser. Yeah. Yeah. But you see oh. the spice. I mean, you see yeah, I think the, you see the Arrakis and the worms right. and all that. So, yeah. Right, right, right. It's there. It must be there. Yeah. I mean, they're not going to write that out. Yeah. Apparently, Hans, <laughs> apparently Hans Zimmer invented a new instrument for the soundtrack. Wow. Is there psychology that goes into trailer production too, though? Are they like it's formulaic like psychoacoustics and weird shit? No, it's just it's, it's just formulaic. It's like where can you cut easily right. to like fade into the dialogue part? You know, it's uh-huh. like yeah, just you always end on the and of four, so you never like. Land on one, so it's like those mm. are all like the big like cuts, you know. Uh-huh. And there's um, always the bass drop, and then the gated thing that's like shh 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 yeah, yeah, totally. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's actually really fun to do the orchestral ones though, because like it's like a god complex a little bit, like having a hundred piece orchestra like playing. Sh- and, you know, it's like even though it's all virtual, it's like it's pretty <laughs> <nice>. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, when you did the score for like Uncut Gems, are you watching it as you are composing it? Yeah, that one we did. They edited to temp music. I hope I'm allowed to say that. And it that's was like, all films edit to temp. Music. I assume that's a pretty common thing. Yeah. Not What's I mean temp music? some of the they, art they just put in like what they a temporary. Yeah, music. Right, and some right, some right. films too. You can actually figure out what song they totally. used. And you're yeah. like, this is just such a bad well, bootleg. Part of, of why film music doesn't evolve as a genre or format. It's like why it still sounds like 18th century music. <laughs> you know what I mean? In most like action, all that. It's like it's just they're just copying. Like what they've already done. I feel like when you have the picture, it pretty much tells you everything you need to know. Do you know what I mean? It's, there's a lot of information in that, especially with an edit. So wait, we got those two scenes. I had not seen the whole movie. They just sent us those two scenes, and so I was like surprised in the theater with everyone else at the end. But do you want to tell people <laughs> what scenes they were? It was the school play scene where he gets kind of like leaves that school play and oh. gets uh-huh. thrown Locked in the back of the car. Yeah. 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 And then the big game at the end, which is cutting between her running around the casino and like the game yeah. and like them in the yeah. trapped in the room and all yeah. that. Yeah. So it was like two of like the more high octane scenes yeah. right. for Absolutely. sure. And I think that's why Dan asked us to do those two scenes too, is because Gatekeeper is kind of bringing that energy. Hectic desperation. Genres are no affects. That's an affect genre. Totally. (laughs) Hectic desperation genre. But are are you keeping the name Gatekeeper now that's problematic? I don't know. What do you you guys guys think? No, you should be Girl Boss. Girl Boss. We were going to own it, but then, yeah, there's definitely been some conversations. Matt wants to change it to um, Gangstock. 
King Stalker. <laughs> Windswept Cranberry Bog, I think was one of his. <laughs> ah, I mean, that, I do like that. That is great. Or he also like was one of the else. other ones he was trying to do was, um, oh, Hibernal Torment. But I don't think we're quite metal enough to do that. Even though so many, some of our um, new tracks are metal tracks. Ah, which cool. I'm actually pretty excited about. I think those have been the stuff people have responded to the most. Maybe it's like digital metal, you know, in, in the gatekeeper way. But yeah, they're pretty fun. That sounds pretty sick. So wait, the gu- are the guitars real or contact? Oh wow, insane. I'm, I'm, yeah. so, I'm interested in how shredding, that sounds. Yeah, shredding. But can we also talk a little bit about fan base and like creator to fan base relations and what they look like for you and for gatekeeper, or if it matters or if it doesn't matter that much because like you have all these different modes of expression and circulation. How you think about a fan base of some sort? I, a listener I base. probably should think about it more. You know, like I guess it's hard for me to like astral project out and like receive what it is that I'm making as someone else. You know, yeah. And maybe so hard for me that I just like don't. Yeah. And I probably should more. I think successful artists probably do that more. Well, like people who consider, do. <laughs> you know, like I mean, yeah. these days it's like what it is. You're basically building a fan club. I think that's right. that's the business model. More right. And more, right. But right, that's the business model, but it's not necessarily the creation model. So yeah. it's interesting to think how to correlate those two right. things. And some artists have thought about, you know, when we think about like Amnesia Scanner, taking the, what their fans are putting out there and feeding it back through their graphic design, for instance, as a totally. way of cohering that fan base in a post-record store world. But like, yeah. who would you imagine to be your, your listener zone? Hmm. I don't know, my friends? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, that's also like, legit. I mean, other musicians, we- yeah, for sure. It's hard so. for me to to have any kind of sense of what the audience is. I Plus, ADR is the worst SEO, even on Spotify. Yeah. Like, you have I mean, to type true, in actually. the full name yeah. of the album it's to really get it. It's really bad. But yeah. it almost is like a flex, actually. It was, also, yeah. it was also like mixed in with all these other artists up until like just you know a few months ago when I like tried to release this and get it all sorted out. I'm kind of thinking about my friends when I'm making yeah. things. It's probably not a good business model, but it's no, but it's, it's a kind true of one. Also, yeah. I mean, it's a true one, and I will say it takes a lot of energy to try to create a sense of coherency for a third party, which mm-hmm. is supplementary to the primary thing you're making, right? Yeah. And today, when you don't have record stores as context, and when you don't have these aggregation nodes as we used to have, right. there is the question of how one does exist in the ether, and when someone catches a signal, they'll seek you out, mm-hmm. or you just have lots of different forms of output, and you're just able to support yourself through a collection of these and every once in a while a little gem is produced that is like for the people and if they catch it, well, lucky them. Yeah, I mean, I like that characterization of it. I also work at a recording studio in New York so I can have this kind of background income so that I'm not so focused on it being... You know my entire like living strategy. Right. I don't think I would be able to have that same kind of ambivalence towards audience if I didn't have like some kind of other way that I was comfortable yeah. making money because hustling through the platform logic to try to make money is oh, just so depressing. Yeah. Um, and I think that I am part of a community, like an international community of people that. Maybe it's not a specific aggregation node, but it's like a little hive on the network that, like, as they're supporting each other and enforcing each other, it's like bringing new people to each other as well. Right. And that's, you know, I put all of my friends and collaborators in one of my music videos in the hopes that they would be able to, like, spread that signal, you know what I mean, through their networks and sure, things like that. And sure. that was probably like from starting my own label and like even hiring PR, who did literally nothing, like, <laughs> That was the thing that was like the most visible. You yeah, know, it was like all of my friends just like sharing it and, yeah. and and celebrating it with me. You know, so 
it's maybe a little bit idealistic of a model. But or maybe it's actually it's very more shrewd based. It's also, actually, let's get yeah, real. I, would I mean, say. if you have if you have the right friends, then it's a very very effective model. Of course, you just. But that's mm-hmm. how magazines work now. Like <laughs> print magazines, they will just fill their editorial with people with large followerships or with high influence, Party-os. and there it all you know. And I even if like I write a text for a magazine, it's often in the contract that you're required to also post about the piece that you're writing. Yeah, somehow thinking of it as content is so demoralizing. It's totally, to yeah, me. it is. It's it like, is. I mean, so of course kind of, it is, but no, you no, know, but maybe it isn't. I mean, no. I think it's also it's. Totally Totally no, fair to say you. that, like you, that like that game is not part of what's interesting to you about making this work. Yeah, I mean, I'm inspired by people who can kind of have like an effortless presence, but still be really active online. You know, but it's definitely not going to be my strategy. I'm actually curious though, because I don't, I missed it. What what was the project with Coracrit? That was I've done a bunch of film soundtracks for him over the years. And we just finished another one that opened last weekend in Zurich at Migros Museum. It's a really cool show, and they set up an event for us that went really well. That was kind of like a listening party for a release that uh, Legendarium, which is my new record label with Matthew, we put out a collection of 10 artists or so that have contributed to Crit's soundtracks over the last 10 years. That's like the first Legendarium physical release. It came out as a USB object. And I think I'm going to probably do the rest of them as the same format. I just think it works. Plugs into the CDJs, fits in your wallet, like doubles as a flash drive if you need one. You know, it's like kind of a cool new format. Yeah. Yeah. Inexpensive, easy to give out to people. What were they called? Like the enhanced CDs that they had in the 90s? No. Where it was like track one you couldn't play because that was the track with the data. But if you put it in your computer CD-ROM drive, they would have like a little like a video. Menu that pops That's like 2000. Yeah. Remember Fisher Spooner was like one of the first enhanced CDs I had. Cool. And it had like the video for Emerge. And it yeah. was like so crazy nice. you could put a CD into your computer and a video would play. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Um, any NFTs? Um, <laughs> not for me yet. You know, I've been asked that question twice. Now, last night, I imagine. Holly and Matt asked me. Uh-huh. And I feel like I've always been a little timid in crypto space. I like spent my Biden bucks on Ethereum. You know, that's like about as far in as Good I am. Move. But I've just never been that interested in money. It was so interested, like last night with Holly and Matt, them. They're so interested in money. They know everything about money. Like they, yeah. they talk about it with such knowledge, and I just really like can barely follow it a lot of times. That's not <laughs> how my brain works. I also like I like the ideas of NFTs more as digital objects than as like crypto transactions or something. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of my work would definitely work in that context, especially the animation stuff I was doing. And I also got obsessed with uh, VQ Gan and Clip. I've been making a lot of them, and they're. Very I definitely much think there's a a big potential in just like yeah, prompt based kind mm-hmm. of game slash art stuff. But I do think like making art for your friends and getting your friends involved, not necessarily as a strategy, but as like part of your distribution method. You know, NFTs are that that's a great way of doing that. Totally, and people love getting free NFTs. I gotta say, so airdropping mm. them to your friends and the utopian aspects of like you. Continuing to get some benefit from the secondary market of the NFTs that is existing now, and people like, you know, Amnesia Scanner or 
yeah. Petra or Harm Vanderpool, they're making a lot of money actually just from that. So at this point, it's not future speculative utopian idea that artists could get more of a share from the secondary market. That is actually happening. So yeah. I'll say that's like one thing that. No, the Amnesia Scanner project good. was really inspiring. I loved seeing mm. what they did with it. it yeah, I mean, very... that changed my mind about NFTs, I got to say, in a lot actually. Seeing the interactive game, the way that the community was involved. Yeah, and, and the way that it. it felt like even somebody outside Web2 user could kind of still interact and find something valuable there right. without being like totally crypto brained like they can still like yeah it was a, a fun accessible yeah. and and also kind of not too contrived within the rest of their work like it didn't feel exclusively like a cash grab in the way that a lot of nfts totally. obviously do. I liked Holly and Matt's too I thought like it was beautiful it was the first time that you know I think a lot of people had seen that aesthetic and then it just like exploded you know that's and, true yeah So when we think back to like 2011 and 12, and we think of like the aesthetic force that was Dis Magazine and was IRL and was you know Gatekeeper just that that time in New York that time in New York we think of that of course and and then we think of now what kernel of the present do you think was already manifested in our culture our shared culture in that time are there any certain strains whether they're just you know words that you associate or certain moments that felt like the logic of 2021 was already nascent in what was happening in 2011, it 2012. does feel like extremely prescient to right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's happening also around it that I think we're particularly well-positioned to see the connection between those two moments because we've ridden a certain trajectory since then, especially you guys. So is there anything that when you think back, are there any moments or any cultural artifacts or any logics or any way of thinking that you felt was emergent in 2012, let's just say that year, mm-hmm. and um, that, that feels like it was already containing the logic of 2021. Yeah, I think a lot of it, uh, as you said, Julian, I think a lot of it is still around. I think it's maybe more interesting to look at what's different, maybe yeah, because maybe not so, much has changed in terms of like aesthetics. aesthetics. Yeah. yeah, they've. I think that like the consumer-driven, polished aesthetic that they that they pioneered or the pioneer around that time with all the artists in that community, maybe is being re-examined through like a critical like leftist economic lens or something <laughs> like you're seeing like oh maybe we do actually want to differentiate ourselves from like these empires there's ways to bring in that kind of intensity and polish without conforming to those aesthetics which is not necessarily what was always happening then but I feel like it was it's the critique. fun to do it then you know can what you mean? be it was even more specific like, can you put actual words and names and textures like I remember looking at your interview interview we were talking about Pete's coffee and I was like oh my god <laughs> totally that was like dross from the aughts that like cool avant-garde Gen Xers wanted nothing to do with uh-huh. but then like dis in this world embraced and was like there's something to this that needs to be pushed and exploded and now we're living in a Pete's Coffee future somehow. Mm, <laughs> or I yeah. don't know. Or are, are there particular? Maybe we're not. Maybe it fell off. But are there particular? Yeah, I guess in like, some ways we are. Everyone had to wear tivas at our wedding in Turkey, by the way. Yes, that's that true. Was tivas mandatory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. I think maybe what happened then that has lingered most is just like the kind of everything goes essentialism where like there's really nothing that's off limits whereas I feel like in previous art movements it was kind of all about defining yourself in opposition to something right whereas like now 
we're not defining ourselves in opposition to anything. We're like embracing literally everything, every possible aesthetic, every possible end of every aesthetic. And that I feel like is really hard to put away. Like how do you have like coalescing around a specific thing? Well, you just get like the same pendulum swings that are very meaningless of like, Pant size and guitars to keyboards, yeah, guitars to keyboards, and Crocs going from being embarrassing to the only sensible shoe. You know, I mean, (laughs) it's just. And once you've seen a couple of these, once we're like our age, you know, you see the mechanics. I don't know. It's kind of it's boring, and I don't know if that's changed or if that's what everyone feels once they're in their mid thirties, or because you've seen it all. You actually see the movement of the pen, and then you see younger people genuinely care about the waves. I imagine Zoomers really. If you like seeing someone in skinny jeans, probably is repulsive. Like, <laughs> like straight up, like oh, and like they really feel. I wear baggy jeans. I wear boot cut jeans. Like I'm not like that. I don't know. And so I mean, <laughs> that will continually happen. I guess that is just an engine that will always be there. But I'm also thinking about the odds being this peak moment of global supply and like numbers of different things and like the sheer availability of things, like the 27th Street explosion. Like in New York City, I always think about mm. how those container shops that were like part like streetwear, part like sex shop, part but they had everything. Like and tons of just, like weird. Fast fashion knockoffs. Right. Uh, but it wasn't like Forever Twenty One. It was like weirder, weird or like, stuff. like weirder stuff, like Proto AliExpress. Yeah, and like how at that moment it was like suddenly, like before when people would like buy really expensive jeans at like Seven or something or APC or whatever. That was just done. You could just buy everything for twenty bucks at one of these container stores. Everything was available. So part of this embrace of the everything was also correlated to there being like availability for cheap of everything, yeah. and also an internet to tell you. Yeah. Yeah, well, the internet in your pocket in too your pocket. is kind of big. And now just starting then, totally. even as surreal as that seems. Yeah. Like, so it was like yeah. a total embrace. But now, I mean, global supply chains for consumer goods are a mess. Mm-hmm. Like stores aren't stocked the same way. There seemed to be a general less availability than there was like what was represented on your screen. Hmm. So things did become more precious in a way. Not everything was available. There was a regional specificity to things. I mean, I wonder if we were at a peak moment of everything being available and for various or, different or reasons. Or like the seminal moment of the everything seminal being moment available. Of it. I think it was also so it was the peak of like neoliberalism continuing to feel inevitable. I feel like yes. for me, the moment where neoliberalism stopped feeling quite as inevitable was the like Ukraine invasion. Honestly, I remember the everyone kind of being region. like, "No, they're not going to deal with the sanctions. Capitalism is going to save it. Right. Keep the borders shut." They both have McDonald's. They right. can't go to war with each other. <laughs> right. Um, right. We still believe that, and so yeah, I kind of feel like that changed things a lot about yeah. sort of the assumptions about ubiquity and international ease and stuff. I'm forgetting it now, but the opposite of xenophobia, oiko. oiko. And this was, yeah, it's like sort of like the elite tendency towards like favoring other cultures just kind of reflexively, which definitely was a 90s thing and continues to be. But well, and it led to that global coffee shop Pete's aesthetic too. Like that was definitely part of a critique record that I, I think you were talking about the interview that I did around Chunky Monkey, which is like kind of responding to to (laughs) that exact thing. and in a, in a playful back. way, you know, not necessarily like attempting to deal with like the political ramifications of it, but not there's not a lot of space now, I, I don't think, for that type of like musicological world music where you're like going somewhere and taking something and then putting it inside a context that's like consumable. Well, Enigma you know? was straight up ripping off like 
like well, there was a lot of lawsuits. Got, yeah, there, there was yeah. a lot of lawsuits. That didn't go like, too well. Yeah, like just like Deep taking too. Yeah, indigenous performances yeah. and just being like, oh, I thought the guys like wouldn't be able to read a contract, not yeah. to mention copyright their music. They have a bank account. Yeah, <laughs> what? I love Deep Forest and Enigma, but you could potentially argue that that's not like the most necessary. Transformation totally. of those, you know, uh, <laughs> traditions. But I mean, when people talk about world musical, I think they might be talking about the individual cultural traditions that are coming from all these diverse places, and being able to engage with those traditions in a way that is reverent and is adding something to the conversation. I think can be done, but it's it's definitely a minefield when you're a white man from America doing it. You know, when you were you know in 2012 in New York, I imagine you were informed in some degree by the people around you sure. and what was going on around you. And I wonder, over the past few years, has there been a shift in what's informing you? What is actually informing you or inspiring you right now? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's still community oriented, even if it's like maybe smaller and patchier now. Because a lot of people left New York, you know, a lot of people are still there. But I think being pointed in the right direction, going down like a rabbit hole, which is going to be really inspiring to me, kind of usually happens through friends, you know, people pointing me in the right direction or sometimes Discord, sometimes like online communities, even like Reddit has, you know, some sometimes I'll find a thread that goes really deep or find an artist and, I kind of like Last FM, which is like a cheesy uh-huh. uh, relic platform, but like <laughs> they have really, really good similar to totally, stuff. Yeah. And if you go search an artist you like on there in a genre you don't know much about or whatever, like you'll find so many interesting, you know, well, a lot of the stuff isn't even on the streaming services, but like you can kind of patch together like your own version of a history that way, you know, which is uh, something I like to do. I, I noticed this on Last FM and I can't find it. Apparently in the Napster era, there was a corn daft punk mashup Whoa. that was really popular and existed, but it's I not on YouTube. It's not like it's on Last FM. People listen to it. And you but it's not on YouTube. It. It's Soul not seek? on have you tried Soulseek? I was just going to mention uh, Soulseek. That's another Soul way Seek you is still can. Thriving. Soulseek is great. You can I mean, go browse someone's catalog that way. Yeah. Which is like another one fun thing that, that I'll was, do I sometimes that, yeah. is I'll search for my own music and then try to like listen to whatever else that oh, person is listening nice. to. You know, that's some fan uh-huh. fan awareness, yeah, maybe. Totally. Like, yeah, that's cool. But it's hyper specific, yeah. and like you know, yeah. I'm just like, uh, what else does this person like? And that's actually in your soul seek, just so you know. <laughs> Definitely, <yeah. laughs> my favorite artist browse my soul is downloading from my soul seek. Totally, I think Amazing. people would actually be very excited to know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah was, that's why people <laughs> see their collections. I know, right? It's I mean, like, like Grimes. Yeah. So I looked at Grimes' TikTok last night, which I don't necessarily recommend, but whatever. This is what I was saying in the beginning about artists being psyched when their song is being used. Of course, TikTok is a different situation, but she just duets people who do stuff with their song where it's just her looking at them. <sighs> if you saw my face right now, it's just like this like dreamy, but like kind of annoying. Dreamy Grimes face. Yeah, and she has I think the way she, she got, looks like, at Elon. Lip inject- she's really just showing off her lip injections, but yes, it's just her seeing who's used her music and responding to it, and that's the way she uses the platform. So yeah, it's Interesting. a popular method. Yeah. That seems more narcissistic than what you were describing. No, it's but, hers is completely narcissistic. But, this is not. Um, but yes, no. But cool. yeah. And sorry, I derailed something else. You're going to say with corn, Daft Punk mashup. Find it and use it for the outro. I yeah. think. <laughs> we can 
I think Definitely it was like, make it. like yeah. freak on a leash around the world or something. Yeah, or probably. That beatboxing part, you could just loop forever. Oh, yeah. maybe that's what, maybe it's just, uh, <laughs> what's his name? I forget his uh, name. Davis. Jonathan Davis. Yeah, I maybe it's him just doing the- I just saw a replica of his mic stand by H.R. Giger. We went to Gruyere. Oh, yeah. oh, have you guys been shinkle? to Gruyere? No, but I saw your pictures. Oh, you went to Gruyere? You have to go. Oh, but well, if you're here, the Schinkel Pavilion has an exhibition of Right, Geiger, which I just saw. saw. That's okay. really funny, but yeah. they, it's like all the same stuff that right. we saw at the yeah. Giger Museum, but it's so such a cool place. It's like the biomech medieval cheese capital of the world, you know? It's yeah. like kind of a strange combination of things, but all really good things. Um, I love it. Yeah, so the yeah. bar is insane. Why don't they do interiors like that? In, it could anyway, be franchised, like, and I remember there being like talk of that a long ago, and I think I thought they actually closed that cafe, so I'm glad I think they, they closed the one in New York, apparently. Uh, I, I never see. got to go to that one. I remember but. Sway had a Geiger table in the back room. Oh, Whoa. I remember but, that. But I mean, even Geiger aside, like, why don't they do cool interiors for play? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. it's just like an immersive place to be. Like, there, there's no example. Bring back Rainforest Cafe. Right, yeah. no, they, right. <laughs> but they do, but they're like dumb not, Instagram yeah. style. Like, they are experiential, but they just put their resources into something stupid. All something the theme stupid. restaurants closed. Mars 2112. Yeah. Oh, Mars They'll, 2112. Oh. They're almost oh, definitely going to come back. That's so rad. There's the pendulum will swing. Yeah, yeah sure. it will, it will, it will. Yeah. What else do you have in store? What's coming up this fall on your radar? What's next? Well, this crit release just came out, so we're still going to be working that for a little while. Matthew and I have been working on a Gatekeeper album for like five years, and it'll eventually be done. We were going to try to release it this fall, but we didn't make that deadline, so it'll be... 2022. There might be a name um, change, the horizontal skill sharer. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah, skill share. Skill share. Same syllable. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Gatekeeper, skill share. Yeah. yeah. I have another solo record that'll probably come out next year as well that's like a pop ambient record I did mostly over lockdown that hasn't been able to get finished yet just due to the filter failure stuff trying to like get that behind me. I think this new record I've been working on, I was like, trying to find solar punk short stories and like things like that and like get into this like eco-utopian mindset, tech eco-utopian <laughs> mindset to make this record. So it has like that kind of feeling in it, which I think is hopefully can have some kind of like visual component as well or fictional component or something because there's more to it than I think just the, the music. Filter failure nice. does sound pretty eco-utopian. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you. Yeah, or dystopian if it's no the filter fails now you have to just like rely on your community or something right. the filter the failed and now your air is poison well you know no. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry but a, a psychedelic experience is quite literally a filter failure oh, of, of your mind yeah, that's right? true totally. no, no, it's no longer filtering all the extraneous Very information that's true so um, makes you think Makes you think. <laughs> cool. Thank yeah. you for stopping by. Yeah. yeah, I think you're our first live guest oh, in really? Berlin since quite some pre- time. since Lyra. Actually, is that possible? No, there has to have been somebody in not there. live. Well, it's anyway, really nice to so, yeah. bring the <laughs> parasocial to the social because totally. I listen to you guys all the time. So <laughs> <laughs> feels like we're a lot closer than we maybe are. Exactly. But, you know. <laughs> I love that vibe. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think Julian and I shared a twin bed back in like 2010. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's very possible. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> at your mom's house or something. I think that my was mom. Uh, I don't think it was my mom's house. Oh, my no. mom lives in Virginia. It was in Boston. Then it was it was in my big studio warehouse. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was like me <laughs> and Matthew actually. I think all shared. Yeah, that would make sense. <laughs> cute. That's cute. Yeah, I always had a twin bed. This <laughs> is my life. I had a twin bed. <laughs> the warmth of each other. Yeah. Thank you. So all right. Well. Bye. Thanks, thank you. Goodbye. Ciao. Ciao. Bye. Thank you for listening to this New Models Green Room, and thank you, ADR, for joining us. We recommend visiting his site, a-d-r.net, to see the full scope of his work, and then you can Google album titles and Bandcamp from there. I feel like ADR is trying to conquer the internet through sheer breadth of web presences and Bandcamp aliases. Also, thank you, everyone, for all of the birthday wishes on and off Discord. And we appreciate all those on and off Discord who gave us their input for our What Does the Internet Smell Like project. The result will be dropping end of November and you will certainly be hearing about it. Also, the NM Street Style Channel's panel last week with Stephanie LaCava and Rachel Tastian is up on our YouTube. Thank you, Jeff and Marcella, for initiating and hosting it. I'm finally charging my radio play lasers. One will be incoming. And with that, See you next episode. This has been a New Models production. To join New Models, visit patreon.com slash newmodels.